Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. So for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. Guess who it is, everybody? It's your man. It's your boy, Dr. Charles Corporal. What's happening, everybody? Shout out to my man behind the wheels of Steel, Kendall the Jazz Man. Williams, can't do this without you. Still missing my homegirl, the Bayou Lois Lane, Rachel Graham. So let's get into this today. Think about this. You know you... Think about this. Let's let's tell this story. You come home one night. You know, you've been out on a long road trip. You come home. You're ready for some peaceful sleep. You know what I'm saying, Jazz? You, you, you're ready for some peaceful sleep. And then you, all of a sudden, you know, you hear your neighbor's TV through your wall. bro. You know, you've been there, you know, and um, you go knock on his door. And all of a sudden, he comes out, and he's had a, he's had a touch too many, right? He starts cursing at you. And you know what? It's been a long, long day, long week, long travel. And so you start cursing back at him. And, you know, the next thing you know, guess what? Here come the boys in blue. What do you do? Fortunately for me, I was able to navigate the situation where I didn't get into any trouble, you know. But I think about, and I didn't get in any trouble because I had a great experience with the police officer. He was able to actually mitigate and moderate the situation, so both of us actually cooled down. I actually want to give my neighbor a shout-out. He's actually one of my closest friends now. He's actually my family. Hopefully that he gets well. He is in um, university recovering from pancreatitis. Love you, Wayne, man. You're my boy. You're my family. Uh, thank God that actually that night happened, actually that the police came that night and made sure that we had to make amends. One year later, we had Thanksgiving dinner together. But not all police interactions are always good. Not all police interactions end up in a situation like that. And so how do we chronicle these things? How do we make sure that the data is actually out there to ensure that police and community members actually know what their experiences are like every day with police? So we can change policy, so we can change practice, so we can change programming for police officers and community members so we can ensure that people can go home at night, they can walk through their communities, they can feel safe. And so today I want to talk to this brother who is doing revolutionary things around this, this topic right here. He is, I don't even want to say a rising star, man. This brother, his star is out there. It is beaming and it's sunshining. And if you ever get to sit and talk to this brother, you will know why. I'm talking about Brandon Anderson. Brandon, what's happening with you, brother? How you doing? I'm great, Charles. How are you? Thanks uh, I'm for having me on. Oh man, uh, this is a, a tremendous honor for me, man, and I'm I'm blessed to have you uh, to join me on as I talk about my favorite hour of the week, Brandon. What's going on with you, man? How's your week been? Oh uh, man, you know uh, it's been great. Uh, you know the sun is shining and uh, I'm alive. Yeah, uh, I'm in good health. Uh, and so things are straight. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we ask all of our guests, Brandon, the first question and our signature question, just to let people know where you are in the world. What's your revolution? Ooh. My revolution is uh, a political act of self-care, mm. uh, of, of finding your way back to yourself 
uh, and making time, energy, and, and, and spending that uh, on yourself because no one deserves you more than you. Right. Oh, I love that. You said a political act of self-care, brother? Oh, yeah. What do you? A, I love that. I mean, yeah. I, not even but. Not, there's no but in that. Uh, can you unpack that for me, a political act of self-care? Because people will say radical acts of self-care, but I've never heard political, and I'm intrigued now. Yeah, actually, you know, that's that's not something that I, you know, I'd love to take credit for that. But Audre Lorde really was a black queer feminist and um, spoke about that deeply around caring for ourselves is in and of itself for black people a political act. Right. Uh, and I... I if I had an opportunity to talk with her, she'd probably go into greater detail and to tell us that there is a story being told about black people right now. And that's a story that we've heard for a very long time. Uh, and that is the story uh, that is, is somewhat inescapable throughout the world about black people when, uh, you know, when black and brown people have little or no access to quality health care, right? When unhoused people are disproportionately African-American or when black boys are shot by police and no justice is served, the story we tell the rest of the world is that the lives of black people don't matter. Mm. And that is a learned story, right? We know that history. That becomes ingrained in our day-to-day, and it creates a theme. Thematically, it teaches us how to show up in the world for black people and as black people. And it can oftentimes destroy our, our... uh, not our need, but our interest in developing relationships with black people because the world tells us they are unimportant and not valued. And so what Audre Lorde, if I had an opportunity to talk with her, I, I'm guessing what she meant by that is that to wake up every day and to do the opposite of what the rest of the world is convincing you to do is in and of itself a political act of self-care. Right. Wow. Right. To do the opposite of what the world has told you. To love yourself. To see it. To be beautiful. You know, I remember growing up, Brandon, and as a young man, and um, I'm a, I think that I'm a little bit older than you. Um, <laughs> I'm probably a lot older than you, dear brother. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I'm a little bit older than you. You know, when black was, you know, black is beautiful. You know, you remember mm-hmm. this was in this was in the seventies. I remember being in a a Black is Beautiful play, and that was just the theme, the theme that came out of it. Black is beautiful, and I think that as you know, as we go out into the world, we have to continue to show up as ourselves and to wake up, as you said, and, and go against the grain and say, you know what, I'm I am I am beautiful. I am smart. I am intelligent. I am revolutionary. And not in the sense that scares people, but sometimes you got to make them uncomfortable, Brendan, as you know. 
But in, oh, yeah. in a sense that I can do things in this world that are, are contrarian to what you believe. And yeah. so that is amazing. I love that. I, I love that. But I, hopefully you will allow me to uh, place that in my in my, my tool belt uh, for uh, another time, you know, to be to mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. acts of self-care. So a, as you're moving in your space these days, and I know that everybody is pulling at you because you have been doing amazing things. But when you have time. Dear brother, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading? Uh, <laughs> funny enough, so what's on my nightstand is The Miseducation of the Negro. Uh-huh. Carter G. Uh, Woodson. <laughs> and, uh, but, but what I'm reading, that, that's, that's a book that I actually haven't had an opportunity to read yet, that a friend of mine uh, uh, in East Oakland gave to me. But I'm, uh, I recently finished um, the uh, Born a Crime, uh, mm. by, which is the, um, the story of Trevor Noah. Oh, okay. All right. And it's really about him growing up in South Africa. Right. His dad is white. His father's black. And so it was a crime for him to be born. And he, and he goes through how, how humor and language um, – can can really be a, a healing practice for for black people around the world, uh, and and that was a great book. And then I'm in the middle of The Alchemist, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if I don't know if anyone's ever been in the middle of The Alchemist <laughs> and like had a conversation about it. Right. But I I feel like I'm not getting what I want to get <laughs> yet, yet, so I gotta finish it. I feel like in the middle is kind of like not the place to be, so I, I need to get closer to the end because I feel like there's a lesson to be had it's in gotta the book. Be. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 you know, it, it's like right there, but 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 I ain't getting it. <laughs> so oh. so uh, I, I actually got to I got to finish that book. I got you. Oh, I know my man Phil Eccles is listening, man. He's my good friend, and he recommends The Alchemist to everyone. And so maybe I need to put y'all in in, uh, in contact with each other because he may be able to give you uh, some inroads, some insight into where the story is coming from when, when it comes to the alchemist, brother. Uh, oh, I mean, please. <laughs> I have yet I to mean, I have yet to read it. I, it is on my list. Uh, I have yet to read it. You know, but before our time goes along, I need to let people know this is the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. Talking to founder and CEO of Rahim AI, Brandon Anderson, and we're about to get into his story. Brother, you know, everybody wants to know. You know, I put the picture on Facebook and, you know, everybody was lighting, began to light it up. Like, who is this guy? Right. Like, who is this nice, friendly, you know, well-educated looking brother? Who is this guy? So, you know, what? how about you answer that question? Who is Brandon Anderson? Uh Man, I'm a I'm a black boy from Oklahoma. What? I'm a that's that's that is as raw as you get. I was <laughs> I was I was raised by my grandparents, John and Shirley Anderson. Uh, my uh, you know who adopted me, uh, you know, and, and and so my my grandfather worked in. Uh, he was uh, a factory worker uh, making making uh, rubber for tires for firestone before they kind of shut down and my mom was uh was a sales clerk my grandma she was a she was a sales clerk for her uh, and we lived in oklahoma city and they adopted me 
two other brothers who were my cousins, uh, and uh, my sister. So we had four kids, and uh, so I was born and raised in Oklahoma. And for the for the sixteen, seventeen years that I lived in Oklahoma, uh, man, I, I just always carry that with me. It, it, it's always um, it, it's always been uh, an influence in how I show up in the world, in especially around the idea of relationship. Right. Like my, you know, my my grandparents, who I will call, for, you know, who you'll hear me call my parents. Right. Um, were deeply, deeply in love. Mm. Uh, you know, they were together for 34 years before my mom passed. And I, I remember my grandfather once, you know, before my mom passed, my grandfather, um, you know, needed to take my mother to Texas so that she could be closer to the hospital in time to get the liver transplant that she needed. And my dad built a fort in the waiting room. What? For, for almost, right? I mean, he stayed by her side for that long. Wow. Right? And uh, and then they got the liver transplant and then came back home. And, and, and they were just throughout, throughout their relationship, uh, I saw them argue. I, I saw them love each other. I saw them laugh. Uh, and and growing up as a as a black boy in Oklahoma, you know, I ain't a lot of black people. In <laughs> I know that. I'm thinking about my cousin Tippy, man. I've only been out there one time, but I ain't seen too many of us, bro. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a you know it's it's enough of us, you know. But I'm just saying, it ain't it ain't um, <laughs> you know it, it ain't a lot of us, right? You know so so to like see that companionship was inspirational, right? Right. And, and, and people would just gravitate toward that. My mom, you know, she was a Sunday school teacher for 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 one of the uh, one of the largest black churches in Oklahoma City. Currently, and funny enough, um, the Oklahoma City Thunder goes to our church. Our pastor is the chaplain now uh, of the OKC uh, Thunder team. This and, and this is so funny because I, like. This is how far we've come in Oklahoma. You know, uh, we were there when Oklahoma didn't have no thunder. You know what I'm saying? So, like, just, just real thunder. There, you know what I'm saying? It was real country. You know? So, like, just if you think it ain't nothing there now, just imagine before right. we had Oklahoma City thunder. You right. know, it wasn't nothing. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I got to uh, experience uh, and, and witness uh, great companionship uh, through uh, the 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 um, you know through the love of uh, of my parents, right. and, and and that was inspirational for me. But I also got an opportunity to see uh, my biological grandfather. Not to make uh, you know listeners confused, <laughs> but I was adopted by my grandparents, my biological grandmother, and my step grandfather um, wow. because my grandmother remarried. Right after she had my mother. But my biological grandfather, I later learned, um, organized around police violence and police harassment for uh, for years. Wow. You know, he was, he was one of the first African-American men to own a nightclub in Oklahoma City. 
and police would frequently harass him and his customers so much so that uh, he ended up, you know, closing his business. Wow. So this, and, what we're seeing and, now, what we're yeah, seeing now was, has a, tough for him. Right. And he we know the history of police. Out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I want to, I, I want to come back for a second because I'm still encapsulated about your story of love and, mm. and, and seeing that, uh, you know, we talked at length on the show, Brandon, about, uh, my father and my mother who've been married 53 and a half years. And mm. you, you want to talk about seeing, you know, seeing love, you know, and most people say, well, you saw this. Why aren't you married? What's happening with that? But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my mother's listening. So, um, yeah, she listens every week as a blessing, but you know, how did that, those, those images of love that you got to see, because you really, I mean, you really had made it a part of your story to tell us. How did that influence how you then embarked on relationships and how you showed up? Um, I, I wanted, I wanted that, I wanted a relationship like that where, where someone cared for me as much as I cared for them. And, uh, and the way that that had me show up in the world, uh, is, is not to, you know, be, be looking for that always, but companionship was always something that I wanted. Right. Right. And I, I don't, I don't know if there's any person alive right now who, who does not favor companionship, <laughs> right? Whether that be with, with a dog, with something. a person, right. with a pet or whatever. Right. The power of touch, man. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that companionship, like you just said, the power of touch, that feeling, uh, I got asked, I got asked a couple of weeks ago, you know, uh, when do you realize that you miss me? And at the time, I really couldn't answer the question. You know, I hadn't really yeah. thought about it. But, you know, when you do that self-reflection, dear brother, you know, you realize that sometimes the, the missing, you know, we get caught up in the day. We do our work. The missing happens at the at the beginning of the day. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the missing happens potentially at the end of the day when you're not there. You know, and the the end of the day, you want you want to have a little touch. You want to have a little conversation. You know, you want to just end, end your day with a little respite, with your head down, you know, with your head down in a position that you ain't used to sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so mm-hmm. I think that's 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 what we all long for. We long for that space where we can be vulnerable, you know. And if my producer was here, she would be like, look, you know, you need to get back on subject. But I wanted people to hear that, right? <laughs> you know, I, I found it intriguing. So growing up at, growing up in Oklahoma and understanding some of the historical nature of uh, of your family, how how did that story influence how you navigated in the world? You know, how did, how did growing up navig- help you navigate and show up and be the person that you are now? Oh, I mean, well, I, I, I'm a black boy from Oklahoma who's been influenced um, not only by love, but uh, influenced by uh, the impact of abusive policing practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and abusive policies that influence those practices and ensure that people like me uh, and people in my family remain in the criminal justice system track. And so one of the very first times, uh, one of the very first times, what's interesting is one of the very first times I experienced um, 
love was at a very young age, right? And I don't know if anyone listening has ever been in love, but I fell in love for the first time when I was 15 years old. Wow. To this tall, skinny, big-headed black boy I first met in third-grade English class. What? Yeah. (laughs) And Charles... It was like falling asleep in class. <laughs> it's nothing. It is nothing I meant to do, but it happened. Right. 15 years old. 15 years old. And for me, I think what, what was just apparent was that there was There was no other person in my life every day um, when I had gotten to that place of love and being in love that I wanted to be around. Right. I feel you, brother. Yeah. And so it was was that experience. And and the first time I realized that it was the case uh, is I, I um, I was in middle school. Just getting uh, going off to, to high school, and and uh, this skinny black boy showed up from uh, uh, who I had met in third grade English class. We actually like we were actually in um, in elementary school together, but he had left and then come come back, and it was that missing him that I hadn't realized I missed him until I saw him and heard his annoying laugh. <laughs> it was like, oh wow. Like, and it, and, and it was, it was that, it was, it, it was, it has something to do, and Cornell West talks about this funk all the time, right? Just about, like, uh, all of the great things that go with living and loving, but also all of the tumultuous things that happen to us. Uh, and, 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 and it was, and, and, and the things that aren't so pretty, right? right. And it was yes. an annoying I'm... laugh that I remember <laughs> was definitely not so pretty, but I missed. Right. And I had no idea that I had missed it until I heard it. Um, and, and because, uh, you know, like probably a year later, um, you know, at that point when I was 15 years old, I got, uh, I, I left my grandparents' house. I got kicked out of my house. Uh, that's a story for a different day about why that happened. Right. But, oh man, I have some behavior problems. And, uh, and my best friend, who was my best friend at the time, um, he ran away from his home, right? He packed up his stuff, and he said, okay, if you're getting kicked out and you're living on the street, I'm not doing that. First of all, (laughs) um, he was having trouble at home. He didn't get kicked out, but, I mean, he's probably on the edge of that, too. Right. But he ran away and was like, hey, I want to run away, too. Uh, you know, so he ran away, and we we kind of lived together for a little bit. Well, what I had thought was going to be a little bit ended up being two years, right? Homeless. So how did so what happened in the relationship? How did the did the relationship end, or how how what was the outcome? You know, of being in love and being so much in love with him, and what happened? Well, I I I, I we lived together for two years and. Uh, and most of that time, we spent time in an abandoned house on 36th and Cold Train in Oklahoma City. And 
it's amazing what a two-room shack feels like when you share it with the person that you care about. Right. And it was in uh, 2006. We stayed together, right, for, you know, years. Uh, and in 2006, when I had already been in the Army, I had joined the Army after that, got my GED, kind of got my stuff together, right, got my GED, uh, and then joined the Army. And he proposed to me in 2006. And I'll never forget what he said to me. Uh, I feel like any person would say yes if this person, if somebody said this to you. He looked, he got down on my knees, stared me straight in the eye and said, I could live 1,000 lives and in each of them find my way back to you. Wow. <laughs> wow. And I was like, <laughs> that's dope. Okay. That's dope. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, uh, and, and it was, Charles, it was without a doubt the happiest day of my life. Right. Yeah. In 2007, a year after, uh, I got a call from a really good friend of mine uh, who was a mutual friend of, of, of ours uh, and said, hey, you know, Brandon, don't freak out. I got something to tell you. And I was just getting off work. I was still in my uniform. And, uh, you know, from, you know, I still have my military camouflage in. And, and, and he was in Oklahoma. Uh, and I was in Seattle at my last duty station. He gives me this call. Brandon, your partner, uh, your partner's been shot. What? Uh, he's been shot by um, police. And so the relationship with um, with my fiance, my childhood, very best friend, and lifetime partner uh, ended in 2007. Brendan, I'm uh, sorry. He was shot and killed by Oklahoma City Police. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, brother. You've been listening to the What's a Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal. We're going to be right back because we need to hear more of this story from Brandon Anderson. And what happens after, you know, when you have to pick up the pieces? What do you do? Stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the What's a Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal having a very intimate conversation with CEO and founder of Rahim AI, Brandon Anderson, man. And if you were here with us before we went to break, you heard a, a powerful story, a powerful story of loss, man. Brandon, my heart hurts, man. I, I was just, all I could do was have my hand over my heart during the break, man. My heart hurts for you, brother. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, dear brother, but sometimes when the tragedy happens, we have to fight back. We have to find ways to use our loved ones uh, as beacons, beacons for light opportunity. So the, the world can see that, as you said early on, that the experiences of black folks and black men are not discounted, that our lives actually do matter. How have you taken this loss and turned it around for the world? Uh, well, first, it took a lot of energy in turning it around for me. 
right before I got to the world. Yeah, I understand. And so for the first two years, I was lost. I was lost. Right. Uh, it, it's kind of like having it. a piece of you missing and you waking up every day expecting, you know, and, and there's, there's even a lot, there's even a sense of forgetfulness when you first wake up. Mm. Right. And I think that that sense of forget, forgetfulness exists for all of us, like sort of uh, when we first wake up and, you know, uh, you know, the color of our skin, uh, the position we're in financially, you know, some sometimes that stuff kind of dissipates between that split second, you know, the split second of between when you wake up and when you realize it. Right. And I and so I was familiar with that gap of time and with that gap of space. Uh, but it had become incredibly unfamiliar to me, um, like, what happened after that. Because normally you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm black. Uh, I'm definitely not rich. I'm working class. Right. Uh, and, and, and now on top of that, my partner's gone. Right. And so it, it was waking up. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. It was waking up every day, day in and day out, without the person who you expected to marry in a few months. But instead of marrying that person in the church you grew up in, uh, you, uh, you buried him in it. Right. So, uh, man, I was depressed clinically, like clinically depressed. Um, and, and I was, I was just coming home from Iraq. So I was, uh, you know, panic attack. I was afraid for my well-being and for the well-being of people who, uh, who I also, um, you know, wasn't right there with. And I was guilty. Mm. I felt guilty that I felt guilty that I could put on a uniform. That included a bulletproof vest, top and bottom camouflage, carry an M16 rifle, and go to war in one of the most dangerous, hottest places in the world uh, and protect Americans who I will probably never meet in my life. But but really fail to protect the one person that means the most to me. Right. Right. That that is an interesting dichotomy that you're that you're painting. That I'm here with all of this protection in one of the most dangerous places in the world, and I still have my life. But the person that I love, who is not in war who is not under duress each moment of the day like I am, who got up one day, decided to go, and something happened. Uh, I, I'm sorry for your pain, dear brother. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thinking, yeah. thinking back after that two years and saying there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity here to 
see if I can do something that is going to protect people who walk out every day. What, what, what did you do? You saw the opportunity. What did you do and how did you take it? Yeah, so, you know, around 2010, I went to, I was in Seattle at the time, my last duty station, and I went to community college. And in community college, I spent uh, two years, uh, you know, studying, trying to get, because, you know, prior to that, I had dropped out of high school, got a GED, joined the Army. And, uh, and, and then after the Army, I, I left and, you know, didn't have a degree, so I went to community college. Uh, and so I was in community college from 2010 to 2012. And it was in 2012 where we saw, you know, Trayvon Martin gunned down. Right. And at that time, uh, at my community college, Bellevue College, which is the largest community college in the state of Washington, I had become and was elected uh, the student body president. And so in 2012, I, Trayvon Martin is gunned down. Here I am in the northwest corner of the country, furthest from Florida. Exactly. From the incident of happening. But nonetheless was impacted all the same. And so I had space to hold for Trayvon and other Trayvon's that were there in the city, and I saw the duress that people were under that this is great that we go to school and have an opportunity and we're not gunned down, but this is something that we feel even in the, on the opposite side of the country. Right. We internalize uh, that. We, it's, yeah. it's there. We, internal, and so, we feel it. Tamir Rice stays with me every day. Yeah. 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 Because I, I, I have a 12-year-old, right? Right. So, like, yeah, that. I mean, state, that doesn't escape us. Right. Right. So you see this opportunity. You, you, you've internalized your student body president. You know, where does the thought come that I, I, I have a space to put something together that I can galvanize people? Where did it, where did Rahim AI come from? Well, Ra first, Rahim means it's Arabic for compassion mm. and a second chance. And so where Raheem came from was after leaving community college and going and transferring uh, to Georgetown um, University in D.C., uh, was about three or four years of research around policing. Between 2014 and 2018, we've lost more Americans to police violence in this country alone than Americans were lost in a 13-year war wow. in Iraq. Wow. That's a stark statistic. And, and, and where, where I was influenced to change, uh, you know, the research question was why, right? What do we have here? You know, what don't we have here that we had at war? And one of those things is we had data. Right. right? My job in the military was... Uh, a data technician, right? And my job was really, really simple, right? It was basically I was T-Mobile for the Army, <laughs> right? 
I, I would be that middle point between field soldiers communicating the critical intelligence they had, and they would transfer or communicate that through my satellite infrastructure that was built mostly by me and my team, and then it would be relayed to base commanders at home. And they would use that to measure impact and to design strategies that ultimately saved American lives, right? And so Rahim, I founded it to do exactly that, to measure impact and to design strategies that ultimately save American lives. Wow. And the problem that, that we see right now is that people do not report their experiences with police, especially when they're negative. In fact, a 2013 report from the Department of Justice shows that 93% of people who experience police violence do not report it. Wow. 93%? And that's the problem. 93%? Wow. Why is yeah. that? Why do you think that they don't report that? I, you know, and I began thinking about domestic violence or, or sexual assault, sexual harassment. Is there the stigma behind it? Why don't people ninety three percent? Why don't? Why are we not reporting that? Well, first, it's intimidating. Right? Human Rights Watch. I can tell you why. We don't need the Human Rights Watch. We don't need Human Rights Watch HRW to tell us this. But, but. Human Rights Watch examined 14 precincts throughout the country and found that the process of filing a complaint, and I quote, is unnecessarily difficult and mm-hmm. often intimidating. Right. There it is. There it is. Most cities require you to do it in person, during business hours, and within 90 days of that incident taking place. Right? So it's no wonder that, that people don't do it. And the information that you're giving, right? But here's the killer. The killer is the 7% who say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take off work. I'm going to, uh, you know, put my kids in daycare after having a terrible experience with a police officer last night. I'm going to miss out on pay. I'm going to go into the police station where I'm terrified. I'm going to suffer through submitting my report about this officer last night. I'm going to give them my name, my number, my occupation, oftentimes where I work, my address, everything, and witnesses. So I am going to be vulnerable. Seven percent of the United States people who experience police violence have done that. And then less less than one percent of the officers are convicted. Wow. Wow. So the data, the data says that even though these 7% are going, what's the, <laughs> there's no ramifications. There's no repercussions, right? Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You listen to the yeah. What's a Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal on WBOK 1230 AM and also rebroadcast on WHIV 102.3. Brandon Anderson, my guest, is the CEO and founder of Rahim AI, a big data app that allows people to chronicle their experiences with police. So since the app's founding and where where actually let me ask let me put that out there. Where can people go find it and begin to chronicle their experiences? Right. So 
uh, they can go to rahim.ai, R-A-H-E-E-M.ai, and click on uh, file a report. And they can start a conversation with Rahim. And Rahim's focus, it is currently a messenger bot built atop of Facebook Messenger that asks you questions about the experience you had with the police officer. And that data is then shared not only to the city government by where you submitted the data or had the incident, um, but it's also shared with the public. So the public has an opportunity to understand how people experience police. And our goal primarily is to build the world's first crowdsourced database there you go. of police interaction to influence policymakers to put at the center of that lawmaking the voices of community. Right. There you go. There you go. And that's the point that I wanted to get to. To you know, I talk to my my mentor Natalie Burke all the time. She's the CEO of Common Health Action in D.C. and she does a uh, a lecture on the impact of big data and being able being able to use that data. Not that it's always going to work, Brandon, because we know that policymakers are, are, are sometimes not swayed by data uh, mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. when they enact legislation and policy, but to be able to use this as a vehicle hopefully, to sway change in communities across the country. And so how has Rahim AI been able to do that in communities? What what have you seen since its founding that says, you know what, this is the right thing for us to be doing? So we were founded last year, uh, June of uh, 2017. And last summer, between August and, uh, well, I say July and July, August, and September, we ran a three-month pilot, uh, courtesy and sponsored by My Brother's Keeper Alliance, uh, which is now an initiative of the Obama Foundation. For three months, we ran a pilot that collected uh, twice as much data as the city of San Francisco and Berkeley had done in one year, we did in three months. And so to put that into perspective uh, with with us with a very small amount of funding and six volunteers, we collected more data four times faster than two city governments wow. with six volunteers. Right. And what did the data show you? Well, the data was interesting. So in that three-month period, we found that 60% of the experiences that were submitted were positive, not negative, which was an assumption buster for us, uh, and that close to 28 to 29% of those were negative experiences. Of the 60% of experiences which were positive, we found that people who were submitting those experiences were disproportionately <laughs> white men living in areas with higher property values. We also drew a trend of the police officers that were often uh, treating white residents 
well, so you had of that 60%, and of, the, of that 60% of people who were white, they would say they had positive interactions with police officer A and B. Well, police officer A and B and their interactions with the 23 to 24% of people with whom were black were completely different. Wow. Wow. And so what we found is that there is a correlation between how police officer A and B treat white people and how they treat black people. So the correlation was raised. Uh, and the way people feel as a result of their experience with police officers and how they view them. Oh, if, even if it was he gave me a ticket, oh, they're just doing their job. Right. right? Uh, and, and, and that was how some white folk framed their experiences with police. Right? But there were also white folk who had um, really terrible experiences with police in the San Francisco Bay Area where the pilot took place. And uh, and so it, it also demonstrated that while race was one part of it, that uh, that white folk are not free from police violence mm. either. Interesting. That is, I'm sure that was an interesting founding. And yeah, yeah. please <laughs> keep going, brother. I'm just I'm 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 tremendously fascinated by this, the data and and what it's speaking to the world. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, we found that there were also several locations that were, you know, where people would give their feedback about their experiences with police that happened more frequently in some places than they happened in others. Right. And so we saw that negative interactions with police happen around, um, happened closer to um, late evening into the middle of the night, but sometimes early in the morning. Uh, and we did this over the summer where people are on foot traffic, right? You know, so uh, when I say foot traffic, basically I, I mean to say that uh, pe- there are a lot of people who are walking around, right? So when, when it's hot outside. Oh, yeah, you know it. Uh, you know it. You know. <laughs> yeah, when it's hot outside, people like to walk around. Right. And when it's cold, people don't. They drive. Right. So, right? so you, have, so you basically have more people who are pulled over in the winter, Um uh, and then you have in the summer, right. uh, or at least you have a lower a lower amount of people who are pulled over on foot, right, stopped on foot than they are in the winter. Right. So the information that you got over, over the three months and, and showed this tremendous, uh, I don't want to say disparity, but a tremendous swath, a tremendous landscape, a tremendous canvas about what was going on with policing. So since then, because I asked this question, our time is beginning to run short, um, what has happened and how has Rahim AI been able to grow and what other communities have you been able to influence policy based on the data that you collected? Yeah. Uh, policy is a long game for us and we're about, what are we now, 13, 14 months old. And so uh, for us, we, we ran that small pilot for three months, but we want to take a stab at something uh, a little long term. So we, we are um, officially launching a pilot here in Oakland, California, in the next two to three months, and uh, hopefully be able to expand to six to eight other cities, primarily in California. Gotcha. Uh, and then by 2025, we want to be in all 50 states. How we've grown, uh, I know work with a full team, a full product team, as well as 
a uh, you know development lead and such. Uh, we've raised uh, almost eight hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's amazing! Uh, that's from, amazing! Congratulations uh, from the, the Omidyar Network, which is um, you know the founder Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay. That's his investment firm. Right. Um, we've also had Echo and Green, Camelback Ventures. Right. Shout out that's... to them in, in New Orleans. And uh, and a few other funders, uh, a couple of anonymous donors who've given us money, uh, all up about eight hundred thousand dollars, and we hope to raise about two and a half million uh, by twenty twenty, so that we can be sort of full scale in doing it. Right, dear brother. I mean, uh, you know, the hour always seems to go by very quickly, and the one thing that I know about this is that the stories that you have told me today have encapsulated me. I'm sure they have encapsulated our listeners. listeners. But we also know that there's technology out there now that you are building that is going to allow people to tell their stories. And then being able to use that data, hopefully, to change policy. As you said, it is a long game. And as you're collecting that data across the country, we hope to hear more about the great things that you're doing. How can more people hear about this work? I know you said they can go to Rahim AI. If they want to find out more about you, what can they do? Uh, Raheem AI. You can uh, write me an email, Brandon at Raheem.ai, or you can go to Raheem.ai and follow our newsletter. Gotcha, gotcha. Brandon, I appreciate you, man. It means so much, man. Good luck to you. Congratulations on all your success. Camelback, Echoing Green. This brother, you, you, you are a superstar, and we need to see more people like you doing amazing work and showing up in the world. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you. No doubt, no doubt. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corcrew. Amazing show with the CEO and founder of Rahim AI. Make sure you check out the show every week on SoundCloud.com backslash What's Your Revolution or go and subscribe to it on iTunes, the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corcrew. Have a great week, everybody, and you know be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your week. Peace. I'll talk to you soon. One child.